Munia, you can do whatever you want, but I am not wearing a helmet just to record this episode. We need to. But as we said, we can't wear biker helmets. We need to wear like you know, like motorsport helmets, right? Like either motorcycle helmets or like you know, uh, car helmets, because mm-hmm. that's actually cool. Well, the F1 helmet that has the special like slot in the front of it where they can stick their cigarettes, right? As they're, <laughs> as they're driving. <laughs> yeah. I, I assume all Euro racing is done in this manner. Yeah, no, uh, it, it, it is. It is hilarious. Never watch an F1 race rank to just love the image that you have. It's like very, um, you know, honestly, probably in like the 1950s when F1 started, that's probably how they did <laughs> do it. It was fucking wild in the 50s, dude. Like they didn't have any like, um, one, like of course, like no safety standards. Right. But I mean, like, um, especially like just in the grandstands in the crowd, like they wouldn't have any like fence or anything. Yeah, so like, yeah. If a car goes <laughs> off, it would just go into the stands almost like, you know, how like a football after like a field goal, if you had no net would go into the stands. Right. So it would just like kill like a hundred people if like there's like a collision or some shit like just go off. Did you, everyone just reaches their hands up to yeah. crowd surf the car. <laughs> Basically, like, it's like, it was like kind of like disastrous, like back when like they first started, like, you know, like professional racing. Um, yeah, it's I insane. Think I, I think I told you the story, maybe on Ending the Myth or India, where in the late 19th century, uh, people in the West, when they're bored, they would get two trains and just crash them together, yeah. like <laughs> for fun. And they did it in West Texas one time and it killed like 20 people, <laughs> like you were watching. <laughs> it turns out when you run two trains <laughs> high speed into each other, it creates quite a bit of an explosion <laughs> and shrapnel. It just wiped out this crowd watching it. <laughs> Well, you know, the old days really were a better time. Um, glad we're moving back to the 19th century. But Munya, you had some uh, sports news for us, right? Uh, F1, yeah. I hear, is a sport now. Yeah, yeah, it's a sport. <laughs> it, <laughs> um, yeah, no. Uh, so I thought you guys would be interested in this. This is my like long game to get you guys to slowly get F1 pilled. Um, and, you know, <laughs> F1, as Good much luck. as like... Uh, it is a sport on the track. Um, a, a lot of the um, excitement also happens um, off the track too, right? And, and that's like a New part York of Jets being a fan as well. But yeah, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> like think about like the New York Jets football thing. Like that's like just like a constant every like season. There's like something just like always just wild drama happening in F1, right? And so um, the most, uh, I think the funniest one, the one that stuck with me the most uh, this season, that uh, this season started in March, right? Um, coincidentally, at the start of the um, Ukraine uh, war. And so... Ooh, I'm seeing the connections. Yes, yes. So I'm dealing the breadcrumbs here. I'm sprinkling <laughs> the breadcrumbs. Um, so bear with me. Um, there's one American team. This is European sport, right? Um, you know, it's an international sport, but it's, you know, uh, it, its roots are in Europe. Uh, but like there's an American, and there's only 10 teams in F1 and just two drivers per team, right? So 10, really? 20 drivers. Um, and so one of the teams is an American team called Haas. They're not particularly good. Um, they don't really win <laughs> many races at all. Um, you know, in F1, it's a really cost intensive, uh, sport too. Like I, I'm like insanely cost intensive and like, um, you know, you have to get your own engine, get your own, like, you know, parts, develop them. That's why usually like car manufacturers like Mercedes, McLaren, Ferrari are, you know, teams, right. 
um, because they're they'll use their research and development and like knowledge of engineering and like making engines to, like make a really you know great one, right? Wait, so it's insanely expensive. I wonder why it's taking off now, finally, in in this stage of the twenty first century. <laughs> yeah, uh, what what could be happening as far as marketing goes? <laughs> where the money is, right? Um, yeah, no, I mean, like literally, like think like uh, on annual, the teams have to spend four hundred million dollars a year to be competitive in F one. Um, then you know, um, they'll try to break even with sponsors basically like you know like it's it's um it's a very highly cost intensive with a ton of team effort uh put into it um but like Haas basically tries to do the um they have like kind of startup mindset where they're like uh oh we're not gonna like just create these from scratch right we're gonna just like buy already pre-made parts like you know, and put them together, which undercuts like actual, you know, like R and D and like, you know, engineering costs. Cause we're just like buying these wholesale and then just like mm-hmm. putting different pieces of a car together and to make it one. Right. And so mm-hmm. they're like running at a super like kind of low cost uh, rate, but sometimes they're like, they'll do well, but like they're, they're not like expected to, but because of these, you know, F1 is a really like unequal, you know, playing field they have to make some compromises that are kind of crazy to stay in F1, right? Because they need to attract sponsors. So they're always kind of desperate for sponsors. Like sponsors will drop because they're kind of embarrassing to sponsors. They're not winning races, right? <laughs> it's this kind of revolving door. It's this like death cycle. And if you get less money, you can't really yeah. put upgrades Just on like your car. The so you're winning Browns less. had to look for sponsors. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly, right? It, it, it's a death spiral. You'd never want to be at the bottom of F1, right? Because like you, you need money to actually upgrade your car and shit. And like, you know, no one's doing it. So um, they were looking for sponsors and they found one interested person. He is from Russia. His name is Dmitry Mazepin. Um, and his company is a chemical country called uh, Urokoli. Um, and it's like a fertilizer producer and exporter. Um, he, Dmitry Mazepin is like a like categorized, like well-known Russian oligarch in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um and so <laughs> he had real, he was like, I want to sponsor an F1 team. You know, a lot of international money gets flown into F1. Like Aramco is a big sponsor of F1, for instance, right? Like, you know. Um, <laughs> Historically cool companies like Aramco. Cool, very cool, cool companies, uh, like uh, like cigarette companies, uh, you know, of course. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, well, like, you know, especially with Ferrari. But now they got banned from F1. So what they do is that they create these nonprofits called like really like ominous names like Mission and like stuff that's like. Um, you know, affiliated with Philip Morris, but they want, but they're separate from, you know, but the, so the sponsor will just either be like a barcode or like just say mission on it or like a barcode that kind of looks like the Malibro logo, but it's not right. And and they like kind of play this cat and mouse game. Cause like, you know, they've since cracked down on um, like tobacco ads are not I mean, acceptable anymore. Right. So like how good could the bang for your ad dollar really be if you're have, if you're like, Cause I'm thinking like the point is to have your logo and your ads like plastered on shit. But I guess like F1 is so like niche and obsessive. Like I guess everybody knows kind what it of, is. So like when you smoke, like you're smoking Marlboros because it's the <laughs> secret why, why, sponsor if you're a of whatever company, Why are you team. bothering to advertise in Europe? The product is selling itself every day in Europe, right? Like you gotta get the, not about convincing yeah, kids right. to smoke. 
It's about convincing it's, it's, kids to know, smoke like more for, cigarettes. If you're a Ferrari <laughs> fan, you're going to be buying Malibu, bro. Like, you know, yeah. like, you got you to smoke your team sick. <laughs> um, so, I mean, like, F1 sponsors have always been kind of, like, shady and questionable, right? Like, it attracts, like, weird money into, into the sport. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but th- this uh, Dimitri Marzipan or whatever sounds like he's on the level. So, <laughs> so he, he, he was like, we want to be a title sponsor for you, which means that, like, their, like, name is, like, front and center on all of their you know, uh, mm-hmm. team logos, their car liveries, etc. Um, Logo but he had right one, on the windshield. Yeah. Right. So they had one stipulate, they had two stipulations. He said, one, the livery must, instead of just being that Haas's colors are white, red, and black. Right. Um, so he said the colors now on the front wing must be <laughs> the same colors as the Russian flag. And yes. so it's like, and now yes. like, so the livery, the American team is now decked out in like a Russian flag livery, which he's yes. uh, with like, but in the, in the, um, yeah, in blue, the white, order red, of the, order, of, of the Russian flag. Yeah. Um, yes, I love and, it. and it has like his, uh, logo like plastered all over it. Right. So it was like, that's one. Already like, okay. my favorite team. I'm, I'm a awesome. Haas racing fan all the way now. <laughs> and he said, also, my son needs to drive for F1 on your team. <laughs> Hell yeah. This, this is a real... Oh, Russian oligarch fail son yes. behind the wheel of a car, an F1 car. I love it. I love it already. Okay, I, I'm... It's the first wanna, F1 car with a dash now. cam on it. Like... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this, no, man, he's going to be the one doing the fucking, like, uh, yeah. insurance yeah, scam. This is... <laughs> he's gonna be hard breaking in front of in front of people. He can't win races because he keeps hard breaking in front of yeah. everybody. <laughs> exactly. This is fucking amazing. What a so. devil's bargain to be given, by the way. <laughs> and the Haas Haas was so desperate that they were like, "Yes, okay, fine." So they had to fire one of their drivers, who's like a legit F one driver, who's like. <laughs> <laughs> like gotten into the point and like for this like fail son like jackass who like nobody likes like he was such an asshole to the engineers to the managers he always blamed everyone but himself well, yeah. right like he would spin out every race well, like well, he would, would not finish races and shit oh like he was God. like so behind the pace like it was that, but, like fans awesome. would call him Mazza spin instead of Mazza pin like Damn, you know it was him. like yeah, I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he, he sucks. So it's just a complete embarrassment because, like, presumably, like everyone can drive a car, but no one can re- drive a car well. And presumably, like some of these to, to edge out, I assume there's some pretty proficient, like, career fucking drivers in. Oh my the god! 20. I mean, it's like the most like elite like, circle. You need a super license to drive F1, and you need to go through like different like you know rings like F3, then F2, and then like the best of F2 maybe get into F1. Right? I mean, it's like really fucking hard to get into F1, and like he just like plopped his fails on guy who doesn't really have any real like you know like um successful racing record right like they call these uh, like paid drivers there's another guy in f1 called lance stroll who's the son of lauren stroll who owns austin martin's uh team uh and so (laughs) so so this this road was already paved what i love about this is again like why you know vaguely my idea why is this like taking off now is because like there's just more rich people to be interested in this and that sort of trick that's the only thing that does trickle down um but like I like the idea that 
in over the next few years, all the drivers will just be <laughs> like political hires, you know, fail son shitheads. Uh, and, that, and like, they'll have to cut like the sharp turns out of the courses. Yeah. <laughs> they'll essentially turn it into NASCAR where yeah, it's, it's just like, NASCAR yeah, it's just a series of left turns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, NASCAR without the close racing though. Like they still keep F1 distance, mm-hmm. but it's like no no turns whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, and just track speeds cut in half. <laughs> like like no one's getting better at this sport ever again. <laughs> no record has been like is like getting close to broken. Like whoever is at the top now in the next couple of years, they will be the legends for all time. No one's getting yeah. no yeah. it. <laughs> What's going to happen is like United Arab Emirates or somebody is going to build one of those islands out of sand, but the island is going to be one straight line for like 500 miles. <laughs> and they're just going to get on it and start on one end and just end up on the other, right? You know, <laughs> like no turns allowed. <laughs> yeah, well, you, but you'll have like a Saudi, like son of, son of, son of Saud, uh, princeling, uh, failed like 26 year old general who led like thousands of men to their death in oh. Yemen. Uh, like be like, Oh fuck. Uh, <laughs> you need something else to do. Like, uh, you're an F1 driver now. Yeah. You, 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 you've crashed too many F 16s in the desert. Yep. We need to get you an F one. <laughs> that fucking rocks. Uh, well, Literally, I mean, so it sounds like oh, yeah, that Moss no. team is really boned. I mean, no way out of this, huh? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. And and he was, like, going in for his, like, second uh, season this season. But, um, you know, then the war in Ukraine happened, which then swiftly, um, you know, had condemnation. Like, F1, like, canceled their uh, Russian Grand Prix that they have. Um, but also, Haas used this opportunity to completely nix his contract and said, uh, no more, you're out. They like released a statement and everything. Mazepin found out via um, WhatsApp from like the drivers, like removed him from a WhatsApp group chat. And like that was his oh, first yeah. indication that something was up. Oh, but they um, kept the money, right? So this is the thing is that, um, so Dimitri, so they, they basically fire um, Nikita Mazepin. They bring back the guy that they fired for Nikita, right? They just call him on the phone. They're like, hey, you have six days until our first race. Do you want to like <laughs> come in and just like do it? And he was like, yeah, sure. He's like this Danish dude. Like he was like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm down. Thanks. Uh, he thought his career was over, right? Because like yeah. once you're out of a seat, like it's like hard to get back in. Um, and so then like, you know, Dimitri Madison was like, um, okay, you guys are going to give me my money because like I gave you like the advance for the season with the terms. Yeah. Um, you oh, guys sure. removed the fucking livery and my son. So like, what the fuck? Give me my like billion dollars back. I mean, he seriously like, gave like a shit ton of money to them. And they were like, uh, no. better win that war faster yeah (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, i mean that's exactly it right like the russian economy is like you know in a state of sanction like by the united states and they're they're literally doing politics like the real way with like guns and bombs on the ground like what court is gonna hear that lawsuit like he has no redress there like this is we're in old school territory now yeah, so Haas just like took just stole, just like took the money and said fuck off and like uh, removed their livery. They have like a really clean livery now, and they're they're just like using their funds just like um you know just on their team. And they now like the most recent race, they actually were had their best finish yet um in the Austrian Grand Prix, um which is just a beautiful sight to see, you know. Um, yeah. but 
Um, Nikita Mazepin responded after a while. Like first, he was just like on Twitter saying weird things like "Thank you for the happy birthday wishes," as if like nothing was going on. Like not acknowledging that he's like not enough one. Like his bio that he essentially is in an Adam Sandler movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and then like finally on March 9th, um, Nikita Mazepin um, tweeted this, which is stuck in my head like forever. Like I I don't even know what to make of it. Um, he said, today I am announcing the creation of a new foundation to help athletes who have been blocked from competing for political reasons. Hashtag we compete as one. Oh my God. So he created with the canceled, the yep. canceled, the canceled foundation, like mm-hmm. a canceled athletes foundation. Um, Damn. <laughs> you know, look, uh, Deshaun Watson, he's looking for something to do this year. So he There's can a, join. There could be a powerful board of directors on the canceled yeah. athletes foundation. Yeah, well, there was that there was that white wide receiver for the Eagles who couldn't stop saying the N word on oh, film. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, remember, he remember had like his, so, dude, like in um, <laughs> that guy is so funny because like he was so open about it too. Like remember in like Sunday Night Football when they like have like announced their position, like you know, like yeah. you know, like Russell Wilson, quarterback, Seattle Seahawks, you know, and they were like did yeah. it. that. That guy was like saying his name and he'd like identify where he's from and he was like deep south. Like what? that's like. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> oh man so like, yeah. not even like a place just like <laughs> and they've run him out of the league and i gotta say um yeah, you know, not for political like, reasons sucks, that's for sure yeah. so for political reasons so he's got a place you know yeah um, they, 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 we need to support nikita mespin's uh, canceled foundation for for canceled athletes <laughs> i look forward to hearing future uh you know the future progress of this league of extraordinary athletes <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to the Mechanical Freak Podcast, broadcasting live from Greg's dog lair, uh, deep in the heart of West Seattle. And uh, we're there, too, where uh, neoliberalism is growing a pay. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Listener, Greg, I know that it is a long storied fact of the show that Greg has terrible internet on the boat and that's why he has so many problems. Greg is in a Seattle resident's home right now where I'm sure they have perfectly fine Wi-Fi and his computer like is not working. He is co- the connection is constantly Taking breaking. Dump. We are establishing that this is a Greg problem, not yeah. an internet problem. It's a uh, very clear. I, I'm now thinking that maybe his boat actually has like fiber optic internet. Like he has like the best internet in Seattle. <laughs> He's got like the internet of like a South Korean like gaming teenager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> On that boat. You know what's so funny is when I told him he should not spend two thousand dollars on a Mac and that he should just buy a PC for a quarter of the price. He was like. We can't do that because things like this will happen. And here we are, you know, yeah, uh, that you are vindicated uh-huh. every day on this question. Always save money when it comes to tech kids. Never spend extra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. Is he just gone permanently now? All right. And we're back after technical difficulties. We definitely didn't just spend 15 minutes watching Greg flail to get his Internet connection working. Uh, That's not what was happening. What was really happening is is that we were all on Hinge, on, you know, Tinder, on Grindr. 
Not or, me, for the record. <laughs> not not Munia. We'll be very clear. Munia was not. If Mrs. Munia is listening, married man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I was on all of those Hinge, Grinder, Tinder, all at the same time. <laughs> because guys, as it turns out, did you know that Seattle is for lovers? What? I've, I've always been saying that. <laughs> that I propose that is the original name of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> think how many more fans we would have if we just went with that you know but yeah according to uh zillow i guess um seattle is the eighth best city in america for singles why um, is a real estate software company giving this information so you can <laughs> know where to buy your house you know if you're single but you're looking to like you know go all in and get your first house anyway you don't want to be locked in somewhere without a spouse mm-hmm. uh, or a long-term commitment where you, you know, aren't going to be able to find one eventually. You don't want to be locked in into a into a city that um, you know people by their dog's name instead of their actual name. Um, you don't really make <laughs> eye contact with, and the sun goes down at four p.m. You don't want to like invest in a place like that. Well, well apparently you do. <laughs> yeah, apparently you do. Yeah, I mean, so Seattle was number eight on this list, which is pretty funny. But uh, the humorous thing is Wichita, Kansas was number one on the list. And, you know, uh, nothing to do with Wichita, but fuck, apparently. But hilariously, the reason why it was on the list wasn't that there was available singles, which you think would be what you'd want as a single moving there. It was just that you could afford to live there. It's oh, like, that's where we're at in America. That's the metric. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like, there's nobody there for you to hook up with, but you won't have to live on the street. So there's that. <laughs> awesome. You actually get a bed. Yeah. I mean, the other funny part was ranking above Seattle. I mean, this was the list, right? So Wichita, Austin, Texas sucks. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I'm sure it's all right, but sucks. Denver, San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, then Seattle. Just a murderer's row of Texas cities. Oof. Just Yeah. Oof. So basically the place to go is Texas. That's where everybody is single and having a good time. Well, all I know is that all my friends in San Antonio have just been fucking the same 10 people that they've been fucking since high school just on a merry-go-round. So I'm not 100% sure about San Antonio, but you probably can't afford to live there. Um, Dallas. Well, I mean, that's Dallas why everybody's single in Texas, like because they're <laughs> no one's making the final move. Like you know, no one's pulling the trigger and tying the knot, right? So that's why they're ranking high here. Yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, there are no good. There is no one good to date in Texas, so everybody's single. Yeah. It, it, well, look. I mean. Nobody has prospects, so there's no reason to settle down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. But the best part is, is right below Seattle, number nine is Washington, D.C., which makes this a truly cursed list because I can't think of a singles market in America that could possibly be worse than Washington, D.C. I mean, I think a, like a D.C. Um, mommy was like uh was hitting on me in line at tsa and she was like a political consultant for like patty murray or something oh. and i was like i don't know man <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, I like the implication that you were still considering it though yeah. <laughs> i would have to see a few more pictures i don't know yeah, yeah right right I'm not a, you're like a shark tank you're not a clear no but yeah you're, you're right skeptical, exactly i'm you know? I, i'm doing the mark cuban uh yeah. on shark tank <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, me and Bren, we stayed on our California road trip. We stayed in Sacramento for a couple of nights and we went to this like, uh, I don't know, that that thing that is the only thing that exists in certain towns in America, the bar and grill. Right. You know, and we apparently went to one that all the young people in Sacramento go to by young. I mean, roughly 24 to 30, but all look like they're 45, meaning hmm. they're all clearly just weird political whatever in California's capital, little, you know, little agents, you know, uh, people buying, doing ad buys, you know, all that kind of bullshit for politicians in Sacramento, who clearly, because they're in California, a real state, think that maybe that one day they'll make the leap to D.C. Either somebody's going to take them to D.C. or they're going to get called into the big leagues. Show them this list. Maybe yeah, they'll and, make it sooner, you know? Yeah, and this and this is clearly the singles bar where they're meeting meeting up in it. And I got to say, it was one of the most depressing mating rituals I've ever seen in my fucking life. <laughs> At one point, they just started standing in the entrance and doing, like, TikTok dances in the entrance. And I just was like, oh... Both me and Brad looked at each other, and I remember we just went there because it was late at night. We just needed, we just finished driving a long ass fucking drive, and we just needed to get something to eat. And I remember we both saw that. We like looked at the sandwiches we're eating, and we were like, I'm just going to house the sandwich so we get the <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> and so the situation with the bartender is like, You don't want to keep your tab open? I was like, Fuck no. <laughs> get me the fuck out of this place. <laughs> I'm A, too old to be in here, and B, this is weird as shit. But, uh, DC. Uh, DC is for lovers, but not before Seattle. So good good news, friends of the podcast, all of which, if you listen to the show, are single and haven't been laid in years. Uh, you're in the right place. Um, but Seattle might be for lovers, but you might have a bit of a hard time, you know, <laughs> hard time <laughs> making it happen here because it's getting harder and harder to live here. Isn't that right, Craig? Well, you may have heard that there's a housing and homelessness crisis on. Uh, it's only sort of the most salient political issue in Seattle politics for, uh, I don't know, the last <laughs> decade. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like we haven't like kept up with the goings on of like city politics as much this year, maybe because of burnout. I think my theory about Harold, like when he was on his way in was that like, he was going to be better at being the mayor than Jenny Durkin. And like, I think that's true. Like, uh, his job is to get rid of the homeless, serve, uh, real estate interests and just look kind of smug and competent doing it. And I feel like, you know, whereas Jenny, every like, dipshit lanyard who came up to her with like a, a bullshit like PR uh, scheme for like how to spin something and like she just jumped on it and like you know and like working workshopping her Democrat voice uh, mm -hmm. with them and like that's what we got you know and Harold's just savvier he's actually wanted this job for a long time and he knows how to play the role and not like sound completely stupid and when to just shut up you know and and nobody really wants to hear it anymore. They just want, you know, the newspapers, they want to give the Herald administration a chance to do the bidding of real estate and like clean up, uh, you mm -hmm. know, do whatever final solution they have planned for uh, the homeless in the city rather than, you know, you know, in two years, maybe when if they fail to do that, they'll be attacking uh, Harold in the Seattle Times and wherever else saying like, oh, you're not. uh 
throwing enough people's belongings away. But, you know, this seems like as good a time as any to like just sort of check in on the state of uh, what's going on with the way the city reacts to uh, its own nature as a machine for generating people who, you know, can't support themselves and are thus on the street. And our way into this today is reporting from uh, Erica Barnett in Publicola that was the result of them, of Erica uh, records requesting basically the minutes from like Tim Burgess's Wansi conference on like what we're going (laughs) to do with the homeless now that we're getting in, you know, now that uh, me and Bruce are in the executive, like this is how we uh, do uh, downtown zero uh, is the code name for the operation which has an ominous uh, finality to it, uh, yeah. to, to choose a word. Uh, so basically what Erica got a hold of here was a memo and uh, hilariously a, a PowerPoint presentation that just like has some interesting like choice phrases in it. So um, that are directly from Tim Burgess, uh, who is, by the way, in addition to the rest of his rap sheet is, let's not forget, uh, Mayor Harrell's strategic initiatives director. Um <laughs> Which, uh, yeah. And so serving, serving here as the, uh, the, uh, Reinhard Heydrich of this little, uh, uh, scenario here. Um, uh, I'll just read from the article a bit here in January, Harold strategic initiatives director, Tim Burgess sent a memo to King County regional homelessness authority director, Mark Dones titled a new approach to tent encampments on sidewalks and other transportation rights of way in the memo. Uh, which is obtained by records request, the new administration outlined a zero-tolerance strategy toward people living on sidewalks in which campers that remain will be given two hours' notice to leave. I I like that because, uh, one, I mean, what was the the strategy before? I mean, it's literally all doing the same stuff, but I... Theoretically, like 24 hours or something, they had to post it, you know? That was was the pre-COVID sort of... Uh, scenario under Durkin. Yeah, I mean, but as like was reported in places like Publicola, uh, even yeah. though the city council told them that they had to give them 24 hours notice, the police just didn't. <laughs> you know, yeah. which is just and do whatever course, they wanted like, anyways, right? Under the laws we've talked about, like, they have to theoretically be offering them a place to go. Of course, like, that's the whole, that's the way this whole thing works, is like, they they are able, there's like two or three beds open somewhere in a temporary shelter. So they go in and offer those to everybody and everyone just like rolls their eyes as they watch their belongings being thrown away and, and uh, they're swept somewhere else. And mm-hmm. uh, so the human services department's uh, hope team, along with the King County regional homelessness authority outreach teams will offer services as appropriate but these services will not be a prerequisite before asking campers to clear the public space. So that's them saying like what we all know, which is how the whole thing works. But like theoretically, like, you know, there's court cases that say like they really do have to have something to give them. But okay, we know this, but this is them laying it out on paper in a Mm. presentation. They're sending emailing around to various departments. Well, and finally getting rid of the fig leaf, right? Because even when they offer services, we know that there's not enough beds and all that kind of stuff. And even if people took them up on it, despite the fact that city tries to make the services as miserable as possible, so people won't take them up on it. But even if they did take them up on it, they couldn't actually house anybody. 
uh, it's all bullshit. But this is the I think this is one of the things that's happening. All right, the fig leaf is falling away on attacks on the homeless. I mean, in Tennessee, they just passed made it a felony, right, to uh, be sleeping on sidewalks or whatever. Essentially, took set lie laws, but made it instead of a misdemeanor a felony. Incredible. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's just going to sweep the country. And I mean, a lot of libs, I mean, you guys were talking last week about like the lib response to the sort of powerlessness of the Democratic Party to stop anything like Roe v. Wade and stuff. And I think one of the lib responses is going to be is they're just going to get a lot shittier to homeless people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, which they'll justify in their mind in whatever twisted way they always do. But uh, I think it's it's not a good time to be one of the poorest people in America. Yeah. Uh, and this in the context of like the relative respite that the COVID period represented, where like there was some backing off from the severity of the sweeps for like a, a moment there. And this is like Harold and Burgess coming in going like, OK, this is the message we're sending. We are cleaning up the streets. So Harold spokesman Jamie Hausman told Publicola the sidewalk plan was never implemented. Instead, the mayor's office focused on streamlining city efforts through the launch of the United Care Team, a group of employees from several departments who are in charge of addressing blah, 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 blah. You know, Erica's response to that is that the administration's dramatic acceleration of encampment removals and its decision to focus on reducing the number of people living downtown on downtown sidewalks to zero echo these early policy decisions. So they're saying, oh, well, we never went with that plan that you're reading the minutes of from uh, Burgess, but you know, effectively they have been massively increasing the sweeps. Uh, so in addition to the memo, there was also a PowerPoint presentation created by administration officials that describes the downtown partnership for zero, which aims to eliminate encampments downtown by relocating people as well as the administration's safe sidewalks plan. Harold wants to address obstructions in the right of way ASAP, according to the presentation. In a separate set of internal memos obtained through the same records request reveals another aspect of Harold's approach to encampment removals that the administration has been reluctant to describe publicly. An encampment scoring system that allocates <laughs> scores to encampments ah, based cool. on a set of criteria, including violent incidences, fires, proximity to parks or children and sidewalks. Mayoral spokesman Jamie Housen described the scoring system as only part of the mayor's encampment prior prioritization strategy the scoring system is the building blocks for encampment prioritization house house and says the system is currently being tested and frequently refined as we learn more to ensure the right information is driving decisions i mean like what an incredible load of bullshit well they're just taking you know spog's uh tear indicator yeah, <laughs> yeah. i was about to say like, <laughs> just adopted it fully i mean it is worthwhile noting that, like, the Nazis did have a scoring system for, like, what groups to round up first yeah. and things like yeah, that. Exactly. I mean, you know, I, all this stuff is, like, it really isn't that much of a leap away from uh, essentially just building concentration camps on the homeless, which, by the way, Seattle has suggested at multiple, you know, occasions of course. in the last decade. I, but, I, I think uh, it's also funny, though, that, like... The goal, clearly, and whatever, they'll hem and Han say, like, oh, we didn't do that policy. That's But there is this partnership for downtown zero. Like, the, the goal is zero. The goal is to sweep everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they obviously, we know they don't have enough ho- houses or beds to give them. Uh, you know, the last administration never did build those thousand tiny homes that Jenny Durkin promised in her first year. Um, I think they made it to, like, 70 or something. 
<laughs> so like the the it's you know the plan is zero is nobody on the streets so so but they feel the need to go through this like charade of making like a dashboard and like a spreadsheet of data that like which i, I mean you know in in the case of the final solution that it really was an administrative problem because the task was so enormous that's mm-hmm. why they had to have all this record keeping and like uh this stuff because they were exterminating such an enormous number of people on such an industrial scale. This is like, this is, I think it's just PR. Like it's an instinct to uh, have like answers on hand for like why we needed to do this sweep today and why this is happening and not at some other place to just make it seem organized. Even though they're saying like, we're going to get everybody off the street eventually away just to some other place or jail or something like the the instinct to have data and a dashboard, which like Bruce Harrell, that's like one of his like platform planks, right? Like we're going to have like the, the data on homelessness in the town to find out what works. And it turns out like the data they're collecting is like what we who we need to sweep first, but also just like that's all it is at the end of the day. It's just answers to like why why this today? Why now? And in the end, it doesn't matter. They're just going to sweep everybody, which they basically have from a lot of places at this point. Well, and the plan seems to be what like a lot of city plans have always been, which is be cruel enough to the homeless that they'll leave and go to like Linwood or Federal Way or something, uh, completely forgetting that those cities are also engaging in the exact same plan. Right. And I got to say more aggressively. Yeah. And I got to say, driving from, you know, Seattle all the way down to L.A., I drove through a lot of towns and things like that. Um Every town, no matter how small you drive through at this point in America, has homeless people in it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, for the first time ever, I found that there was like homeless people at rest stops, right? Like no near no apparent towns <laughs> uh, that were just like set up at rest stops and things like that. Like, I mean, this really is getting to a pretty severe crisis. And this is the show. I mean, their answer is. We'll just keep doing the thing we've always been doing. Yeah. We've been saying, I mean, we've been saying this, it's so obvious, but like we've been saying this for years on the show of like, this isn't a local problem. Like the, the city can't really do anything. You could, you know, spend a lot of money and house a bunch of people, but like it's, even if you did, you wouldn't get rid of the homeless crisis because the way America works and any city in America certainly is like a machine for generating homeless people, people who don't have, homes and there isn't you know only part of that a big part but only part of that is the crisis of supply and cost of housing yeah um which you know would be a massive undertaking to solve but that that even that wouldn't solve it because like i mean i i mean i guess on a big enough scale i mean if you just built you know millions of free public housing units that would do it but like on a on a scale that the city could do you know even if it devoted every effort that it possibly could like it it can't solve this problem because more people are going to keep like being kicked out of their homes because they're destitute, you know? And now that's clearly everywhere, you know, and, and housing prices are shooting up everywhere in fucking shitholes in the middle of nowhere. Like housing prices are going through the roof. So like I, when I like the question, like, again, like that's why it's been so hard to talk about this stuff over this year. Like, cause like what's changed? Like, okay, we're just back to the pre COVID system of just like sweep these people out. Hope like, Hopefully you harass people enough, make their life unstable enough. Maybe you can get them into jail for a bit. Uh, maybe, maybe you can just 
make their life unstable enough that they die. Um, maybe you've, maybe you'll force them out into the woods and they'll get eaten by a bear. Like, I don't know what the prop, the plan is here, but like at, at what point do even like neoliberal hell cities like Seattle, like Democrat run strongholds that are like governed with the iron fist of real estate. At what point do they realize like, there's nothing you are going to do about this. There's nothing you can do. And I don't know, maybe there isn't because there is something at the end of the day, there is something they can do. If you can muster the forces, the political forces of a city strongly enough, if you can unite like real power of real estate, city hall, the police, the chamber of commerce, if you can do it with enough deafness, uh, uh, you know, political moxie determination, maybe you could make your city one of the handful in America that doesn't have homeless people in it because you're that brutal that you just, you, they're batoned like out of the city at the second they spring up on the sidewalk, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's the plan. Like, be, even though be the like one the city place. keeps generating more. Yeah, well, I mean, so, so it's a constant like estate. reign of terror to do that. If you yeah. if you ever manage to get it down to zero, right? Their plan is downtown zero. Of course, there's still probably like you know hundred thousand people in the city right now living on the streets. If you ever got it down to zero, you're talking about like a constant like reign of terror on every block by the police and like whatever, like rousting people. Like it's it's probably not doable. Like it's probably an impossible task, but what I mean is like, is that the only, is that the dream they have in their head? Mm-hmm. Are they just completely out to lunch? Like unrealistic? Like, I think, I think they're I stuck in the blind alley, right? Of there's nothing you can do, right? Because they've completely accepted that the market can be the only arbiter of housing. And when you do that, you create massive homeless populations, but you can't do anything with the homeless because to solve the problem, which is to make them home full instead of homeless, to give them a home, right? Yeah. Would go against the market prerogatives of real estate. And that's the only thing that can be answered. And I mean, you know, when, you know, urbanists try and do the supply and demand thing, the part that they're forgetting is this glory period of which America still had plenty of homeless people, which was the post-war period of housing, that the market didn't do any of that. That was all government funded, whether it was the government heavily investing in public housing or whether it was the federal government's program to buy every white person in America a house. You know, like that's how, you know, the housing boom of the post-war period was done. Massive government intervention into the market. Now, it feels and is capitalism because, of course, real estate interests pocket all the fucking profit. Right. And no public group got any access to any of that, but that's how the housing got built. The market literally will not provide housing for people to live in. And that's the ultimate problem with this. And the reason why no politician can figure out what to do about it and no liberal can come up with any idea of what to do about it is it would mean actually confronting that reality that the market cannot provide housing for huge numbers of people in the population and the longer you let it faster the worse the problem gets but they just that 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 when they hear that they're like the manchurian candidate or something some words just can't enter their brain you know it's uh you know it's incredible stuff well and on the city on the level of a city like they can't affect that like this is a economy-wide at least national level problem it's something you could 
well, the city the of Seattle level. would have to opt out of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Basically right. say, we're, we're just not, not going to do capital markets for housing, you know? Yeah. But also, I think what you're saying, Greg, is that, um, that you know, city governments just can't do this on their own, even if they wanted to, right? Like, I mean, like, to have that type of scale, you'd need, like, the actual arm of the, you know, like, national state to, you know, like, federal funding to, like, have a grand... Opting out of capital markets means you need like a lot of, you know, um, you know, state investment yeah. and capital. Right. Yeah. I, it, it's two things. It's like if you wanted to do red Seattle here, not only would you need a lot of capital that does not exist on like that city governments, local governments do not have the power to muster like they, that's not how America works. Uh, you need that level of investment from the feds, but also like. You can't do uh, you can't you can't do like uh, social housing in one city like you can make yeah. an impact. You can. But like and you could. And I don't mean to say like you shouldn't try, because like if you wanted to do uh, Red Seattle and start like using every dollar you had and try to get some grants from the Fed, you could make an impact. You could show it could be done and you could use that just politically to show like, look, we're doing something different here. We're not only housing people, but we're we have a different kind of housing market here that isn't solely governed by the free market, whatever. But like it, it still wouldn't solve the problem. Like literally, like no matter what you did, you'd still have homeless people in the streets of Seattle. And if you did either way, you'd have them on the streets of every other city, you know? Yeah. And I think the problem is, too, the political problem is that when large tracts of public housing were built post-war, I mean, along with a lot of problems with it, which was that it was largely used to take ghettos of black people in cities and just make them more dense and more concentrated as far as like instead of being across 10 city blocks concentrated across two city blocks a problem but like the other issue was real estate interests immediately began attacking city governments for building public housing but they also attacked state governments and convinced state governments to just pull the power away from city governments to build such housing and control such housing, right? And then they also attacked it at the federal level and convinced federal administrations to... So, I mean, this is the problem with this kind of doing local work is that politics doesn't end at the boundary of your city, right? And, you know, even if you were able to lock out real estate interests from your perfect Seattle city council of, you know, Tim Burgess and Bruce Harrell and whatever, right? You know, like, even if you're able to build the perfect Seattle City Council of your dreams, right? Uh, they would just go over the head to the state and the state would just take that power away from the city government, you know? Yeah, and this has happened. Yeah, as has happened, right? And that's the interlocking. I mean, this is part of like how the state functions. It has all these interlocking pieces that won't allow you to just take one piece off the map. Right. They can always hit you from another angle. And, um, you know, what we're seeing essentially in real time, you know, which people have seen in America plenty is the absolute failure of capitalism to provide for people. Right. It's not a good way to organize a society. Right. If the goal of that society isn't to be completely fucking awful. But, you know, and that's what we're seeing. I think that's the roadblock they're in is what can you do if that's the reality? Yeah. So anyway, you know, that's that's our check in on the Harrell administration. uh, And the answer to like what's been going on is more of the same, more of the same sweeps they've been doing for years, more aggressive than 
in the relative slowdown of the COVID period, no new significant housing for anybody, uh, no significant drops in housing prices, no new fucking ideas from the chamber, uh, Windermere cohort in government, just more bad news. Yeah. And for all the big talk about the mayoral election or whatever, uh, it just turns out nothing changes, you know? Well, I mean, we had some more good news from uh, the county, right? Ha ha ha, right? Uh, and that for those that were following it, uh, the, the Charlita Lyles inquest came to an end. And wouldn't you know it, the most predictable thing on the fucking planet, uh, the jury decided SPD did nothing wrong when they showed up at a pregnant woman's house, uh, talked to her maybe for about five seconds, 10 seconds, and then just immediately started shooting the shit out of her shoot you know hitting her seven times uh killing her you know the the jury basically said uh sorry rules say the police can do that that's well that's the that's the decision um are we know, surprised they're not wrong <laughs> they're not wrong like are, are we really surprised about that like that it's been proven over and over that they are allowed to do that and there's even been you know rulings in their favor before this too yeah and you know, the the lawyer uh, for Charlene Lyle's family released a statement where they said basically as much. Right. So they said the family does not blame the jury for its decision. SPD's policies, practices and procedures are designed specifically to allow an officer to shoot and kill a person in mental crisis with a paring knife. In those circumstances, officers are not trained to disarm. They are not trained to wound. They are not trained. They are. They are trained to shoot to kill. The message is clear. If a person is in a mental health crisis and has any type of sharp edge instrument, tool, or weapon, do not expect them to survive if 911 is called in Seattle. And I think that's sort of the grim statement there, right? You know, ending statement of what has been, I think, a, a fairly traumatic inquest uh, for the family. But, I mean... I'm glad they pursued it, but I, it's just hard to imagine that anything different whatever come of it you want to understand why you know we call like uh seattle the city on the bleeding edge of neoliberal dystopia like this inquest process is something that doesn't exist a lot of places doesn't exist any mm -hmm. other county in the state it's this whole you know you get a jury to overlook evidence of course it's not a trial no one's been charged it's now up to the king county now that the inquest has finally gone through, having been delayed for years, um, she was murdered in 2017, I believe. Yeah. Um, this inquest process is this thing that now Dan Satterberg, the King County prosecutor, gets to you know take use uh, everything he's learned from it to take into consideration whether he'll charge them with murder, right? Well, obviously that's not going to happen. It never was. Like, but this is this whole process that's trial-like. That's like, well, to get to the bottom, to get the facts out. Um, to hold police accountable theoretically. And we can see here that it's obviously bullshit. Like, you know, it's a, it's this uh fig leaf. Um, it's this busy box for, to draw out, you know, anger, whatever for years to give someone yeah. a sense that there's an angry energy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that there's some kind of process. It's just like everything else. Uh, just like the, you know, police, uh, professional, uh, board or whatever it is, you know? Oh, like um, the CPC. It's just like yeah. the, 
you know, it's just like all these federal invest, you know, not that they're ever going to happen again, but federal investigations of police departments and things like that that never amount to anything. It's just like stuff like the January 6th hearings, right? All of it is meant to just dissipate energy, right? Yeah. To make sure that people never get too mad. And I mean, you know, to give the sort of, I mean, this is, this happens in all these kind of investigations, but to give sort of the maddening details, I mean, the jury unanimously, fi- unanimously finds that the police officer that initially started shooting Charlene Lyles did not comply with the use of force policy uh, from, you know, SPD. And then unanimously found that his use of deadly force was justified. So, you know, I mean, this is the shit, right? Again, the thing to stress, though, is that they are correct. Yeah, that that sounds contradictory, but that is the law. Yeah. Yeah, they have because the police use of force regulations and training are also another layer of bullshit. Yeah. And so you, you have all these, and now because Seattle is this liberal progressive shithole, like it has more layers (laughs) of fucking bullshit process, procedure, training, accountability mechanisms, this fucking drawn out fucking years long you know, full on jury process, ludicrous thing. Like, why are you having like a jury, like get together with a judge and like go through a whole thing that is essentially the structure of a trial that isn't a trial. Mm. So that, you know, so you can just someone, some jerk off can decide if there should be a trial. Um, Like it's, it's all there to be bullshit. It's just, we've, we've just piled because that's all that liberalism can do. That's all that these big city Democrats can do is go like, yeah, there sure seems to be a problem here. I guess we can layer on another thing that makes us look like we're doing something or that something could be done in the future that it just isn't. So we, they have uh use of force policies. They were found this asshole, right? Like he wasn't, he was supposed to have his taser. He didn't have his taser. He, uh, said and lied that he was like backed up against a wall. It wasn't the video clearly shows that he was not, you know, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like all, all true, all true in the end. They were right to murder her and her unborn uh, child. Well, and the thing is, is that the, basically the way that police violence works and all this kind of stuff is the rules for police are if they feel personally threatened, they can kill you. And the arbiter of whether or not they feel personally threatened is the officer themselves. So unless the officer walks into court and says, oh, I killed this person because I wanted to, because I hate black people. <laughs> this is a premeditated <laughs> thing. There's literally nothing that can be done. If all the officers tra- do is just go in and say, like, I was scared. And, and their that's training that's done. is to and their training and their uh, disposition and their desire is to put themselves into situations where they're going to feel threatened. Yeah. And they're also trained to find everybody threatening (laughs) so and at the same time i mean Mm -hmm. look i don't want to put it on our police officers they might tell a lie but um you know faced with a murder trial and you know going into court uh being told by all their legal advisors and everything like that all paid for by the city uh that basically okay these are the magic words i was scared i felt threatened for my life and i did it right and once you do that even the prosecutor is going to explain to the jury, like, you know, the the, <laughs> the law of the land is if they feel threatened, you know, you're going to have to say that it was, uh, you know, that it was justified. And so, yeah, I mean, it's why none of this shit ever goes anywhere, you know. And again, it's because the law is about force and it's about exercise of power. 
And this is what the city wants. This is what the wealthy in Seattle want. They want their police ready to kill at a moment's notice. And that means you have to let them kill. The end. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we don't need to go into the details anymore, the details of the case or the, the bullshit inquest. But like there are some funny details about how the inquest process works. So like there's it, it, it's unlike a regular trial. There's actually uh, not because it isn't a trial. It's not like yeah. someone prosecuting and someone it's, defending it's effectively a, a grand jury, you know, yeah. hearing. But public. Yeah. Um, but there's uh, three parties represented. So there's a team of lawyers representing the family of the victim of the murder. There's, and then there's a team of lawyers representing the police officers and the police department. And then there's a team of lawyers representing the city. Yeah. As if like, those aren't the same interests. Like, you know, (laughs) God, what a fucking joke. Well, and there was like little details in there too, for people that didn't catch it, where, uh, SPD. So the police officers called up their, you know, commanding officer and told them they felt threatened by Charlene Lau's family being at the inquest. And so SPD sent down members of the SWAT team to essentially go intimidate the fucking family. And when this was brought in up in a court, yeah, in a court, in a court proceeding in a county courthouse, which was brought up like, what the fuck is SPD sending police officers to a county courthouse? for? What are they doing there? Yeah. Like- and, and SPD just basically said, ah, we just do what we want. Right. And everybody just accepted it and was like, yeah, I guess they do. And I mean, it's just one of those, again, I mean, one of those things of, uh, <laughs> I don't know. For anybody on the left, if you think you're going to do anything in America without first dealing with the police, uh, you know, and having a firm position about all police officers not only got to go, but got to go in a permanent sense, I don't know what you're doing. Like, it's. You know, it, you know, this comes up, this comes up um, on the left. Oh, I'm going to say it because you did, Brian. On the uh, discourse. You, you, you opened that box. Yep. Um, that like, you know, like how, 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 like what's the prospects for, you know, some kind of real heavy fascism in America? And like, you know, the question gets asked like well who are going to be the stormtroopers you know like who, and it's like they're already here we don't they don't need yeah. to be organized in the same openly centralized way as the nazi party did yeah. they are they already they don't have to be organized centrally to then march through the streets fight their enemies and gain power they already are in power in every inch of america and though administratively disparate, they are universally uh, united by their politicization to the right and to each other, you know, yeah. uh, and and thus are going to enforce that uh, reality, that will that is their own, that is reflexively tied to the valence they are politicized toward, um, which is going to be t- to the right toward fascism, certainly toward capital and real estate. And then that's the experience over the last like 40 years. Um, Like they're already there. They're already there. No one needs to invent anything new. You don't need the proud boys to become a a much bigger, scarier organization. Um, The cops exist and they don't need a set. That's part of, I mean, this is part of the definition of neoliberalism, right? Like Mm -hmm. these, these powers are disparate. They're, they're not like, they don't need to be centralized 
um, they are they're run by the fucking algorithm, man, like of mm. of neoliberal capitalism itself. They're just out there doing fascism every day. And if you try to do something different, you're going to get a fucking boot on your throat. Well, the reality of professionalization for 100 years has been to take those things out of the public sphere, every element of politics out of the public sphere and concentrate it in private hands. Mm-hmm. And one of those is the stormtroopers. I mean, the thing is, is that the reason why the Nazis needed brown shirts and shit like that, right, is that the German state was weak and didn't have a large police force that could deal with mm-hmm. worker strikes, you yeah. know, communist demonstration, all that kind of stuff. The United States is not in that position. It has the largest army of cops that has ever fucking existed in human history. Everyone more dedicated than any fucking Nazi brown shirt to, you know, insane right wing politics, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you just don't need that stuff in the United States, you know? So it's like, it's always one of those things of, it's the problem with historical analogies is it forgets the actual current historical conditions in the country you're actually discussing, right? But it's uh, good times. Good times coming. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, I I always think back to the police parade, uh, the NYPD parade, and just like you know, like see, seeing that visualized. I mean, you know, I know the numbers. I know you know how many you know police officers there are, and how much like you know the NYPD is funded, like over a billion dollars a year. But you know, to see that like parade, I mean, that really kind of put into perspective like just how much of like a standing. Basically, like a standing army occupation of like a politicized, like right wing, you know, unit. Uh, we are just in the city of New York, right? And that is like transferred relative to the population, like all across the country. So, yeah, um, it's already yeah. here. It's not good, guys. It's not good. Um, you know, go read our palm dot. I'm gonna echo Munia's recommendation from last week. Go read our palm dots, fascism and social revolution. And, uh, Maybe go out and uh, start talking to some friends and neighbors and stuff and uh, meet some new people because, um, look, you're not going to OK corral your way out of this one. Uh, you're going to need you're going to need masses on your side. So it's yep. time to start talking to people, even if they don't 100 percent agree with everything you have to say. OK, you need to start having some combos. All right. Well. Greg has uh, he's fallen d- so deep into the spider hole. His Internet connection has severed entirely. And honestly, uh, it's it was a pretty depressing episode. I think it's safe to go ahead and call it a day. Yeah, I think so. All right. I don't know if we had any new patrons, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, sh- wag my finger at everybody anyways and say, let's get those Patreon numbers up because we got one spider hole for Greg, but we need a spider hole for both me and Munya as well. Yeah, so come on guys. Two more spider holes to fun. Guys. Tell your friends about the podcast. Stop <laughs> gatekeeping. Uh, this week, by the way, on the Patreon, uh, we will have less technical problems because we already recorded it, but we'll have less technical <laughs> problems and uh, more sports news. So yep. tune in to find out. All right, everybody. We'll see you all next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.